Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a stellar show for you today. I am calling in from my hotel room at Google Cloud Next, which we will talk about briefly and then will be covered in the newsletter. And we will also cover some exciting things like a brand new SmartThings tracker, Vivens adding Google Assistant support, Google Assistant's also taking video calls for the yet-to-be-released video screen functionality. There's a new security flaw in the IoT. Kevin's going to talk a little bit about his cloud headache. You guys are going to want to stay for this. And we are bringing back our, is this the worst connected idea of the week idea? Because, well, we found something that was pretty bad. You can let us know what you think. There's a bit of other news there. And our guest this week is Alana Fishman, the COO of Wise Labs. And you guys are probably familiar with this because we've talked about the Wise Cams before. She's going to explain how the heck they get those so cheap. So before we get into all of this, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Afero. Looking for an IoT platform? Find out why Kenmore and D-Linked picked Afero. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market, 99% fewer support calls, and 10x higher activation rates. Plus, they can reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. To learn more, visit afero.io. That's A-F-E-R-O dot I-O. Okay, Kevin. So, I am at Google this week, and we should probably just get your Google disclosure out of the way. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I forgot. I am freelancing for Google, writing some blog posts for them. It is strictly in their Chrome area, has nothing to do with IoT at all, so no influencer or anything there. And the other thing I want to say is I'm so excited that you're at Google Cloud Next because last year when they had it, I was working for Google full time and I had such a blast working that event. I think it's a cool event because it's, it's all cloud. And I mean, if you're a developer, you're really into it, I'm sure, but it's still some neat stuff coming out. It was. And they had lots of really good customers. A lot of people are choosing Google Cloud. So we're not as focused on all the super cloud stuff, but there were three things that are worth mentioning for the internet of things. And I'm going to put those in context for you. Oh, actually, by the way, you guys, did you know Kevin has a Chromebooks focus site? This is not a disclosure. This is more just, hey, hey, he writes a site called aboutchromebooks.com. So, you know, it's like an IoT thing, but it's really a computer. Yeah. If you have time for another hobby after IoT, you know, come visit. There you go. I think they're easier. So <laughs> let's talk about Google's news. This week, they announced Kubernetes on-prem. And for all of you guys going, what, who? This is an orchestration layer, and it's actually turning out to be the orchestration layer for IoT to tie the cloud to what everyone calls the edge. And we can defer on a little bit of what the edge actually is. But the point is, if you're going to build something as a developer, you really want it to work in both places today because IoT is, you know, the future of the internet. By both places, you mean in the cloud as well as maybe on-premises at your place of business. On-premises at your place of business. And eventually you want to write things that run in the cloud and on like cars and other computers that are running around like gateway devices on-premise. So it's not just like super server computer type things. So Microsoft announced something called Kubelets. They're actually virtual kubelets. And that allows you to have this orchestration layer run both places and lets you manage everything in a coherent fashion. It's a big thing. 
I'm not going to get too technical with you guys because you're probably like, Stacy, stop, get to the doorbells. But they all know also- what it is anyway. They have them at Thanksgiving. We have giblets and... Um- giblets? Yeah. Giblets and-, and gravy and giblets and gravy? Right. I stole your joke. I'm sorry, Kevin. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Google announced Kubernetes on-premise, which is a step closer to getting these things working everywhere. This is an important project. Pay attention to it. They also announced Edge TPUs. TPUs are their TensorFlow processors or Tensor processors, which is their machine learning processors. They're specially designed chips just for machine learning. These are not Edge like on the sensors. These are going to be Edge like Android Things devices, gateways, maybe a camera, things that run Linux. Um, and they also announced Cloud IoT Edge, which is pretty much the same thing Microsoft calls their IoT Edge software. And this is, again, just a way to connect your device with limited computing power back to the cloud in a coherent way. So that's what all of this is. Now everybody has this. And by everybody, I really just mean Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. Google has been a laggard in the IoT space. So these announcements really allow it to catch up with things that people care about. One more qualifier here in case people have not heard of Kubernetes. It's a container solution. So you can not worry about setting up virtual machines and servers and all that. You literally just have a container without a platform installed pretty much on demand. Kubernetes is open source, but what Google is doing is they have their GKE, which is Google Kubernetes engine to tie into all of their IoT stuff. Yes. And, you know, I will talk about this more in the newsletter. So I'm not going to bore you to death with this. But the big picture story is Google is catching up with Microsoft and Amazon here. So go Google. And actually, last bit, we talked probably six months ago on this podcast, what is Google's IoT strategy? And I think we've got a better answer of that now with what you just talked about at Google Cloud Next. It's becoming a little more cohesive. It's an easier story to tell. Yes, it is. Yay! Okay, now, moving on to fun and exciting things. Kevin had a scoop this week. And Kevin, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I had a scoop this week. <laughs> oh, oh you, want, oh, you want me to really talk about it? Sure. So <laughs> I actually, for my Chromebook stuff, I actually scour the FCC database here in the US because any devices that emit wireless radio signals are tested by the FCC before they can go on sale. And that's how I found out about new Chromebooks and other devices and such. And I found a new device and it's an IoT device. Not only that, it, I think, is the first, in the U.S. anyway, the first IoT consumer device that will use either CAT M1 or NB IoT networks through either Verizon or AT&T. The device is the Samsung SmartThings Tracker. It has not been announced here in the U.S., so that's where the scoop part comes in. However, they launched a product that looks exactly the same and has the same functionality in Korea back in October, and they called that the Samsung Connect Tag. And basically what this device is, it's it's kind of like a Bluetooth tracker that you might put on your car keys or a backpack or whatever it might be, or whatever possession you have, or you might carry it around with you even, I'll tell you why in a second. It's got Bluetooth, it's got Wi-Fi, it's got GPS, but then it connects to the IoT networks that I mentioned. And what that will do is it will allow you to remotely find these 
these devices or your possessions where the device is attached. You can't do that with, say, a tracker or a tile unless you get crowdsourced information from other users and such. This will be just like a find my phone type of function. So I don't know the price yet. Don't know what the service cost will be. A couple bucks a month for sure. It also has a button on it so that you can press the button and send your location to anyone, any one of your contacts. And there's a smart home component that many people may not realize. You could use this as a way to geofence your home. You walk close to your home or you drive close to your home. You could tie it into your SmartThings hub because it is a SmartThings device. Have your garage door open, have your lights go on. So instead of using your phone for the geofencing, you could use the Samsung Connect tracker based on what I believe is coming. Got it. Yes. And I actually, when I had my SmartThings, the presence detector was one of my favorite items as part of like the little bundle because I put one in my husband's car and I used to have him, when he was getting closer, it would notify me. <laughs> did he know home. you put he that did, in? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Just it checking. wasn't a secret thing. And I wasn't stalking him. I just wanted, especially since this was Wi-Fi enabled, I just wanted when he got close enough to get to my house, I wanted to be able to, I had a light flash and then I'd run downstairs and do all the dirty dishes in the sink. So Ooh. That Ooh. was my... Yeah, I never empty the dishwasher and when Barb comes home, I get yelled at. So I like this idea. Okay, good. There you go. See, it's the get out of jail free card with your spouse. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how much that's worth. We'll find out. All right. Next, we're going to talk about, I don't know what to call this, but I saw two stories this week that I thought were worth mentioning. One was from Slate and it was talking about, it was a guy who had installed a Ring video doorbell and he loved it, but he found himself freaking out because of the notifications. And there were two components to this. One is he didn't realize that he could fine tune his notifications and get fewer of them. But the second was he still, after he had done that, was still kind of freaked out knowing all this stuff. And he kind of developed an unhealthy relationship with his Ring video doorbell that made him feel maybe less safe in his neighborhood. The other story was from CNET. And it talked about, it basically talked about trying to piggyback on a... (laughs) This person had moved into a house with smart gadgets and had a lot of trouble setting them up and installing them. And then they also had an issue with the Nest because they were trying to program the Nest thermostat and they were like, uh, I don't know, how cold do you want it to be? What time do you want it to change? And that's a little ironic because the Nest actually, if you just reset it and live with it for a week, it'll figure that out on its own. But the two things I thought were worth talking about from this story is one, Smart home devices are still really difficult. There's a lot of questions and information with the setup process that people kind of take for granted and manufacturers take for granted. And I don't think they should because it is hard when you put these things in to try to figure out, I don't know, how many zones does my sprinkler have? What type of dirt do I have there? And so... Yeah. You know, I mean, part of, as I read that article, the Slate one in particular, I thought he was overreacting. However, yes. I get it. And I still think he was to a point, but less so now as I think about your average consumer who just says, oh, video doorbell, it sounds great because the features that are touted are great. You can see who's coming up your walkway before they even get there. You can have a two-way voice conversation, so on and so forth. There is benefit there. But what comes with that isn't talked about. And So I sort of get his point that, you know, he's like, this is too much information, information overload. I feel like the house is wearing Google Glass, he said. I I sort of get that now. But it comes back to planning what you want. You can't just go out and buy a product without planning because you need to understand what it's going to do, what it's going to do that you like, what it's going to do that you don't like, what kind of information is it going to capture. And you need to fine tune your settings. I think a lot of his beefs could have been handled better in terms of the notification settings. So you're right, though. It is still complicated is a long way of saying it. And there are, 
like my husband had a Fitbit and he took it off because it fed into like certain neuroses he had. He was like, I don't like it. It's not making me healthier. It's making me more focused on this thing that I really don't want to be focused on. So I understand that. And I think also as he gets older, he's going to find it or as his child, he has a baby gets older, he's going to have an unintended side effect of when I'm traveling. I actually love checking out my video doorbell because my daughter would, you know, I could see her every day when she left and she could wave to me. I can't wave to her. So that was just a nice thing that made me feel connected. And then also when she leaves stuff at school, we can always check the video doorbell evidence and we're like, oh, you weren't (laughs) wearing your jacket when you came home, but you were when you left this morning. So that's where it is. Yeah. I think if you're the type of person who wants that connection to your property and your family and your pets and so on. These are obviously there are a lot of great devices that can do that. If you're the type of person who says I get too many notifications on my phone today, and I don't even have smart home devices. If you suffer from information overload, you might want to think twice about really investing in some of these products. Yes. Speaking of doorbells, we have a We have two doorbell little bits for you guys. One is Kevin swapped out his doorbell. You swapped out your ring for a Nest doorbell, correct? I did. I did. I had been having some issues with the ring doorbell in terms of connectivity, and I couldn't even do a hardware reset for some reason. It just would never get me through to the setup process to find my wireless network. And I suspect it's probably a firmware or a hardware issue at this point. And the only reason I say that is because I recently purchased a Nest by Yale Lock, so I decided let's go with a Nest doorbell to replace the ring. And... For anybody who's installed any of these video doorbells, if you have a regular old chime, you know you have like little jumper cables to install in the chime itself. And I did that with the ring and everything was working for a while and then it stopped working. Well, the Nest Hello comes with the same type of connections. And I'm like, you know what? I bet you it's pretty much the same from an electrical circuit standpoint. I'm not even going to change those out. So I spent 10 minutes pulling out the doorbell itself, the ring doorbell, putting in the Nest Hello, I went through the setup process and it does work. So I didn't have to go into the chime. So it's actually a good thing. If you ever want to swap doorbells, you probably don't have to get into your old chime again. The other, Yeah. The other thing is it went right, like I said, through the setup process flawlessly and it's working 100%, like no issues whatsoever. So again, I think I probably have a bad ring unit. So I probably should have complained about it and, you know, sent it back. But I don't know. I'm starting to go all nest in that regard. Hey, then you can go Google Home. So final bit of doorbell news is Arlo is going to add a doorbell to its lineup of products. The timing on that is fall. The price is uncertain, but it's not a video doorbell. It's a doorbell that can be wired or wireless and you just push it and it notifies your phone and then you can talk to the person or they can leave a voicemail for you on your doorbell. I don't know how else to call Hmm. it that. So the fact that it doesn't have video is really kind of interesting. They'll tie it into the existing Arlo video products. That's why it can be battery powered off of two-way batteries for two AA batteries for a year. But I don't know. I'm like, eh. Yeah. I remember we had a caller question about video doorbells that were battery powered. And the, the issue is the video component. And that's what's gone from this particular device. In that way, they can run on, as you said, two batteries for a year. You can't do that with video. You just can't. And that's why they're typically wired. So I see why this might appeal to a swath of people, but not a very large swath. Not homeowners, I don't think. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people like, Get uncomfortable about video, so I don't know. But there's yes, like the guy at Slate. <laughs> yeah, like the guy at Slate. So, okay. Speaking of getting uncomfortable, let's talk about the latest security flaw for Bluetooth. 
Sigh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the Bluetooth SIG has already spoken up about it. Most of the coverage that I read about this was really about Bluetooth devices such as your phones and things. I think there's actually an IoT component because there are Bluetooth-based IoT devices. So that's the only reason I bring this up because it has to do with the Bluetooth standard simple secure pairing process and Bluetooth LE's secure connections pairing process. And IoT devices can use those. So it basically... It has to do with the key pairs in the security part of the pairing process. And the only way, if this was an IoT device you were pairing, the only way somebody could possibly intercept and inject malicious code and all that, they'd have to be in range of your devices as you are pairing them. So, you know, anytime you're going to pair Bluetooth devices, just make sure nobody's around for 300 feet, I guess is probably the best I could say. Try to avoid that guy walking around with the computer in the hoodie. It's always the guy in the hoodie. And see if you had a video doorbell, you'd know where he was, but that's a whole other issue entirely. Basically, Microsoft said their devices are not affected. Google hasn't said anything about Android-based devices. And that's interesting because there are a few IoT devices that are Android-based. But Apple, Broadcom, Intel have all deployed fixes for the bugs. And Qualcomm has as well. I don't have a list of devices on the IoT side that have been affected because nobody has put that together. But I just thought I'd throw it out there. Okay. So there you guys go. You can worry or not worry. As I'm not worried. Be. I'm not worried either. All right. Let's talk about some little news bits about Google Assistant. One... Vivint has added Google Assistant support. They've had Madam A's support for a while. And, you know, a lot of people are using Vivint. They've actually got some really great smart home products. So now they work with Google. Yeah. yeah and if you sign up with Vivint, they're giving every new customer two Google Home mini devices now. And also they are adding support for the Nest Thermostat E and Google Wi-Fi. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. And Google Assistant can now start video calls on Duo. Okay. On what? Duo. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, nobody uses it. That's, yeah, for people who didn't get that. I think I have six of my hundreds of contacts. I think six or seven of them are on Duo. Wow. Wow, that's pretty good. You know, because I don't use Duo, but I did dog food it when I was at Google, but I haven't used it since. Oh, no, I'm down to four. This is phone-centric right now. It's You can then use your phone with Google Assistant, typically an Android phone, and just say, hey, I'm not going to say it, but hey, G, you know, call so-and-so on Duo, and hopefully it won't say on who, on what. It will actually place the call. Did we explain that Duo was FaceTime for Google stuff? Oh, no, we didn't. Okay, that's what Google is. (laughs) There you go. I think we have explained it now. Yes, I'm sorry. Maybe that's why people don't use it. (laughs) They don't know (laughs) what it is. Regardless, so for video calling, you can use Duo, yes. It's only for phones right now. I think, though, this could be a precursor to Google Home devices with screens, maybe that smart display that we saw at CES, for example. Yes, the one from Lenovo that both of us are like, give it to me now. Yes, take my money. But even like my NVIDIA Shield has Google Assistant built in, and it's obviously connected to a TV because it's an Android TV set-top box. So if there was a video camera that I could be adding to the NVIDIA, boom, I could do it that way as well. So there's lots of possibilities, but don't get too excited yet because it's really just for phones at the moment. And it's Duo. So That too. Okay, moving right along. Let's talk about your cloud experience, Kevin. I'm very curious to hear about about (sighs) connecting our IoT voicemail hotline to the cloud. Which we already did once. We originally started on a Raspberry Pi, and we've had some issues because the dog likes to yank on the power cord. And when that happens, there is no IoT voicemail. So I moved everything up to Google Cloud, and it was pretty easy. And I did it under the free tier, but unfortunately, one of the services it's using is not free. So we looked at AWS, and I spent 
at least four times as much time getting it to run on AWS. The whole user experience was so much more challenging to me. And, you know, I'm not a developer by trade. I don't have any formal training. This is me hacking away, tinkering and figuring things out. So maybe it's me. I will say that. But at least with Google, I could actually write code in the cloud if I wanted to through their Cloud9 editor. But here I had to do everything locally and put it all up. And I had to even send it all up through a terminal command line interface. And even before I could use that, I had to install the command line interface to a Linux terminal on my Chromebook. It was just so many steps. And in the end, even though I got it working, it failed after a day. Now, that could be the way I implemented. I will say that. I'm not cutting AWS on this one. And the weird thing is, like with Google, you sign out of your terminal, but your service still runs. Here, through the command line terminal, when I killed my connection, the service just stopped. So I need to figure out how to make it keep running and all that. But I'm so fed up with it that it's like I almost don't want to figure it out. It's Cloud headache doesn't describe it. I mean, I spent so many hours and just got so frustrated by it. So if you have help for Kevin... I'm sure he would welcome thoughts or <laughs> or send Advil <laughs> or send Advil. This is just, I mean, obviously one guy's perspective, but I thought it one was- One inexperienced guy's perspective. I, I, you know, I should point that out again. Right. But there are plenty of people who are trying to build this stuff or who are not, you know, you may be an expert in AWS and trying to convert over to Google and maybe this speaks to how much easier it is to convert from one to the other. So we're not taking a lot away from this, but I thought it was worth sharing with people, especially since our audience likes to do this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Hey, Kevin, you want to talk about the worst IoT idea of the week? I almost don't after reading what it was. (laughs) But yes, we should, because everyone should share in our misery, unless there's a few people who want Bluetooth LE jeans from Tommy Hilfiger. Yes. So this week, today... Wednesday, Tommy Hilfiger, Hilfiger, Hilfiger. I don't even know. Think flags. They actually announced the Tommy Jeans Explore, which are jeans with a Bluetooth low energy chip in them. And they are, I don't know how to explain this. You download an app, you activate it, your jeans, and the app basically talks to your jeans and your phones and you, you get You have points. to pair your pair. Yeah, you pair your pair. Right. You get points based on how often you wear the jeans. You get one-of-a-kind rewards and experiences. This is basically like, hey, buy some jeans with a chip in it so we can gamify your jeans-wearing experience and market better to you. That's exactly what it is, because at the tail end of this, they try and sell it. They basically tell you what it is as a marketing plan, because they say the integrated technology in the products allows for brand engagement and interaction beyond traditional touch points. Because through, I got to finish this one. This one made me laugh. Through rewards experiences and interactive hotspots located across the country. So you got to go certain places with your jeans now. The app brings users together, creating a community of high engaged micro brand ambassadors. No, it won't. Yeah. So this is (laughs) Rebecca Minkoff, who makes accessories. She actually, her brand actually did one of these with purses. And I thought it was stupid when you stuck these on purses, although there was, I think, a tracking element, which was like slightly better. But yeah, this, this is not what you want your smart clothing to do. However, if you are out there, if you do, you want this, please share with us why you would want this. And there are connected hoodies as well. Those cost a hundred bucks and the jeans cost 120 bucks. So, you know. So you'd have to pay me 120 bucks, and, and this is key, you would have to create a VR app just like Pokemon Go, where I could walk around New York City with my jeans and look with VR to see who else is wearing Tommy jeans and tag them and get points. Because that would be fun. But other than that, no. 
Yeah, they do have a Tommy Explorer duffel bag. So No. <laughs> Still no. Yeah, it doesn't mention in the duffel bag that the Bluetooth offers any tracking functionality, which I think is actually kind of a waste. Yeah, I mean, you have it right there. Somebody steals your duffel bag, gets 30 feet away, your Tommy app should tell you. Right, or you should integrate with Tile or something else where then that happens. The Tommy Tile. The Tommy Tile. So this is, in our opinion, a silly, stupid idea. Like, I buy a lot of connected things, and I'm not even going to buy these. But if you do, let us know. And... You can actually wash these, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I would imagine there's some, you know, waterproof protection in there. Any smart clothing would have that. I mean, I've worn smart vests and socks and things, and yes, they're all washable. Yes, there's usually a puck that you take out. I don't see any pucks here. Yeah, I don't know but if there's a maybe, puck. maybe Tommy didn't think about that part too well. We don't know. Okay, so yeah. Wash and wear. Oh, they're done. Oh. Too bad, so sad. Although I've washed my Fitbit and it's turned out just fine. So who knows? Okay. Well, that was our silly idea (laughs) of the week. (laughs) Let's now go to our voicemail for this week from the IoT Podcast listener hotline. This hotline is brought to you by Schlage. And for our listeners and people who leave messages, you can have a chance to win a Schlage Sense smart deadbolt and Wi-Fi adapter. So to enter to win, you just need to give us a call at 512-623-623. 7424 and leave us a question. At the end of this month, we'll draw a winner and notify you. So call before the end of July, midnight ET, July 31st. So let's hear this week's voicemail. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Stacy. Uh, my name is Mark Butler. I'm actually a new listener to your podcast. Recently stumbled upon it on iTunes. My question is, why doesn't every smart home accessory manufacturer like Schlage or any other brand, why don't they all just work with Alexa? Why is there certain camps that certain accessories seem to fall within? Is it more than just, you know, Google versus Alexa and competing platforms? And I guess as an extension, why are there different protocols like Z-Wave? Why wouldn't everything just kind of work with Alexa right out of the box or maybe just work with Google right out of the box if that's the camp that they chose? Okay, Mark. Good, good question. Yes, excellent question. And we tend to take it for granted that people know all about this, but that's a dumb thing on our behalf because why would you want to know this much about the Internet of Things? So, Kevin, you want to break down the issues here? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of questions, and this one is more opinion than anything, and you can chime in if you disagree. But So why doesn't every smart home device maker just work with Madam A or Google or both and so on? I do think there is... A look, if you're a device maker at market share, who's got more speakers out there? Or who do you want to partner with? I don't think, I believe that most of the device makers want to work with everything as much as possible. Apple certainly limits that because device makers would have to make a HomeKit version of a device as well as a non-HomeKit version that would work with Madame A or Google Home, etc. So I think that's part of it. I don't think there's anything nefarious about choosing one over the other if you're a device maker, but that's my take on the first part of that question. I don't know if you agree. I do. And you're right. Madame A is the most popular, but it's not the only one. So you'll find out later when we do our interview with the wise COO that they picked that one first because by golly, that's what everyone asked for. But now when we get into the bigger question, which is what is, it sounds almost like what is Z-Wave? Why Z-Wave? Why Zigbee? Mm-hmm. That is a function of those are older standards. They've been around. Everyone wants to be the standard in the home, and we haven't actually come up with one that's going to stick so far. And so you still need those. And it's partially because the smart 
digital assistants, for the most part, are not hubs. They don't have the radios needed. They're just actually a voice interface. And it actually takes a lot to get new devices working. So both Google and Amazon have established frameworks now for things like thermostats and lights that say, hey, if you make a light bulb, you just use that framework and everything's very easy. But if you make something like an oven or a kitchen faucet, you actually have to develop that framework with both Google and Amazon to start making those things easy. And that actually gets back to HomeKit. It is actually easier and requires less hardware on the hub side because Apple chose not to use any of those other protocols. They only use what's readily available, meaning Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, in which case Apple iOS devices have both those radios by default, phones, tablets, the Apple TV, the HomePod. That's why they can be Apple's HomeKit hub. When you start introducing Z-Wave products and Zigbee products and get away from Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, there's good reasons to use those radio protocols. They might be, for example, one of them had mesh networking before Bluetooth did, so you could extend the range of your devices, for example. But you need a hub to manage that radio chatter because a Google Home doesn't have that radio inside, so it doesn't understand anything. So it needs to go back to a hub and get that information. Now, there is Amazon does have a hub. It's the Echo Plus, I believe. It is, and it has Zigbee on it, but, but no Z Wave. No Z Wave, and not all Zigbee devices actually work with it. So, yeah. and that gets into a deep, convoluted thing. So, Mark, you are right to want this to be simple and easy, and yeah. you shouldn't have yeah. to learn all this stuff. But right now, you kind of do. Right. And that yeah. is the answer. Not a great answer, but it is the answer. Okay. I think we've done a pretty good job dissecting the news of the week. Kevin, mm-hmm. let us now hear a word from our sponsor, but all of you guys stay tuned to hear an interview with Ilana Fishman, who is the COO of Wise Labs. She's going to talk to us about wise cameras that we all know and love, and she answers a bunch of questions about security and privacy that you guys have been asking for quite some time. So before we go to Ilana, let's take a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is the Smart Kitchen Summit. It is the leading global event series and community focused on the future of food, cooking, and the kitchen. It's announcing its fourth annual North America flagship event in Seattle, Washington on October 8th and 9th at the world-renowned Royal Hall. This year, the Smart Kitchen Summit is going to explore how technology is transforming the meal journey from food growing and production all the way to the consumer plate. There are two days of speaking sessions, fireside conversations, product demonstrations, and more. If you are interested, you can take 25% off of your tickets with the code STACY at smartkitchensummit.com. That's Stacy S-T-A-C-E-Y. I know. I don't know why it's in it. If you are at all interested in the future of food or anything like that, you should definitely come to this. I will be there, actually, and hopefully you would have a good time too. Now, on to our guest... Alana Fishman. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Ilana Fishman, who is the COO and co-founder at Wise Labs, which, as you guys probably guessed, they are the makers of the Wise Camera and the Wise Pan Cam that we got so excited about over here. So hi, Ilana, how are you doing? Hi, great to be here. Awesome. All right. We're just going to go right into the big question, which is you guys are selling a really highly capable camera for not a lot of money. It feels like someone's going to throw or pull the rug right out from under us and do something crazy with this. But how are you managing to sell a 
$20 HD camera or a $30 pan camera? Yes. So that is a top question that we get and ultimately comes from a core belief and what we set out to do when starting this company. We believe that high quality, awesome technology products don't have to be expensive. And so to do that, we focus on everything and our meticulous and everything we do when we create our products. So it's things from efficiencies on the supply chain to our packaging, to our sales channels. So we sell primarily direct on our e-commerce sites to customers. We don't spend a lot of money on sales and marketing. And so customer support and word of mouth and people telling people about our product are core components of our success. So we try and trim down costs everywhere we can, and we sell at the very lowest possible price because we believe that that empowers people because you can do so much more when a camera costs 20 to $30. You can buy five of them and play with them and do a lot of really creative things. And that's core to what we're trying to do. So I have to ask, do you actually make money on these things? Or are you just venture-backed startup that's like, yeah, we'll make money later? So we are venture-funded. We did our first seed round last year, but we are break-even on our products. So we are not. this is not a loss. So we're not selling cameras with the hope of making money in the future on subscriptions or things like that. Our cameras come with free cloud storage, and we are committed to doing that long-term. We're not looking for other revenue streams. Okay, so how do you achieve break-even at such incredibly low prices? Let's talk about manufacturing, how you came across this, how you're building the business. Sure. So we have an amazing manufacturing partner that we partner with. And one of the things we really look for is the ability to produce at scale. So when we can produce at scale, we can recognize those cost efficiencies. So we've had an amazing launch. So we've sold over 500,000 units since launching, and that allows us to bring the pricing down and really pass those savings on to consumers. Holy cow, 500,000 of these things? We have. That is amazing. Are people buying five or six? Are they buying one and there's just a lot of them? What does the customer look like? Sure. So a lot of people buy one to start. We see a lot of people that don't really believe that they can get a high quality camera for 20 to $30. And so they buy one and then they come back and buy more. So our, our average user has more than one camera, but a lot of time people will start with one and then come back and buy more. Video is so expensive to host in the cloud. I've seen a lot of startups offer seven days or 14 days of storage, but then they're like, holy cow, this is way too much money. We have to charge for this. So how are you guys making that work? Because that is an ongoing cost associated with every camera. Yeah, and that's something that we price into our pricing. So it was something that we forecasted in and accounted for from the beginning. How did you get the experience or how do you know How accurate were your forecasts, I guess, is what I'm wondering. From a cloud usage perspective? Yes, because a lot of people, you know, they obviously try to think about this, right? But then they meet the reality and they're like, oh, maybe we didn't architect well for Amazon or maybe Mm -hmm. any number of reasons. So yeah, sure. So one piece of it is we pair local storage options with the cloud option. So the cloud option will record a 12 second clip when the camera detects motion or sound. And you can add a micro SD card for local storage to be able to get continuous recording or longer clips when there's an event that occurs. So we let people add a micro SD card for local storage if they want more of that longer storage time, but limit the cloud storage to those 12 second clips. Got it. And you can do continuous recording all the way to an SD card? 
Yeah, so you insert a microSD card in any of our cameras, and there's two options. You can either set it to continuous record, so it'll record 24-7. With a 32-gig card, you can get about two to three days worth of footage, and then it will automatically replace the oldest footage. And then you can also have the option to only record when there's an event. So the camera records in one-minute increments, reviews that one-minute increment, and if there's an event, motion, or sound during that minute, it saves it. If there isn't, it doesn't. For your customers, what percentage are using SD cards? So we see about half of our customers will add a micro SD card. What are your customers doing with this? Is it mostly security? Are they watching their dogs? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, we engage with our customers pretty regularly, and we have a very robust community that just engages with us on the camera usage side. They also engage with us on beta testing, new releases of our firmware or our app, also alpha testing new products that we're working on. So we get a lot of visibility, and I would say there's a fair number of people that are looking for that traditional security or keeping an eye on their house. We see a lot of creative uses, too, just because of the price point we're at. So people will set them up to watch their 3D printer and watch the progress there and check for errors during printing or set it up to watch their bird feeder or put it in their crawl space or maybe just stick it in their garage to be able to quickly check if I remember to close the garage door this morning. So we see people using it in a lot of creative ways. We had one user that actually set it up in their nursery. So a lot of people use them as baby cams, but this guy actually wrote an entire algorithm to monitor the breathing patterns of his infant child based on the video feed from our camera. Wow, that's a lot of work there. Yeah, but people like to tinker. We have a very uh, tinker-heavy community. And I find that interesting because, I mean, yes, the price point, I'm totally like, why wouldn't you just buy one? It's 20 to $30. But it also seems like a very mainstream thing. So someone who looks at a Nest Cam and is like, ooh, that's $200, and I'm not really sure I need a camera. So what is your audience? What is the makeup? What percentage is like more mainstream versus kind of people who are crazy like me? Right. We see a mix. We definitely have both. And it's a challenge for us to be able to make a product that appeals to both of those communities. I think at launch, it was very much a tech geek tinkerer community who saw this as a really cool product and could really appreciate how hard it was for us to do what we're doing, how hard it is to deliver a product with the specs and features our cameras have at the price that we are. So we saw our initial people were very much, I think, in that community and have continued to engage with us, like I was saying, on the beta and the product development side. But as the product picked up steam, and especially as we got more visibility in places like Amazon and our website, we started to get more people that weren't necessarily that tech geek community are just a more mainstream person looking for a baby monitor or a pet cam or a way to check in on their house. And so making sure that the setup process is easy and the UX is simple for people that may have never used a smart home camera before is a big part of what we do and think about. Got it. And it is really easy. I did appreciate that. So let's go back to the, I can't believe you can sell a camera for $20. Sure. When we talked, probably not a year ago, maybe it was last October. I don't remember when this launched. But after it initially launched, you talked about you guys are from Amazon Mm -hmm. and kind of the founding ethos and how you guys envisioned the future of the smart homes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So the four of us that founded WISE met while we were working at Amazon. And so we have very close ties to that community. And we believe in that same ethos of creating a customer-centric experience. And so everything that we do is centered around feedback from our users and continuing to improve the experience. And so, you know, at launch, we had a 
pretty simple camera. We focused on a camera that was easy to set up and worked, and we've been adding features as we go. So one of the things we really focus on is not just selling a $20 camera, but making that camera more and more valuable over time. So listening to our users, finding out what features they want, and adding those features through app and firmware updates Our biggest announcement was last week we added works with Alexa certification, which is actually really challenging. And there aren't a lot of cameras that have earned that badge and was especially challenging for us because we did have limitations from a hardware perspective because of the price we're at. We don't have as robust internal components. So we had to work extra hard to get that certification and make it work with our hardware. Okay. And then the first one, the Gen 1, it doesn't actually work with Madame A, correct? Right. And so Gen 1, that was a big piece of why we did Gen 2. So we upgraded some of the internal components between Gen 1 to Gen 2 for that plan of adding features like Alexa because Gen 1 components didn't support it. But we kept the price the same. So we did not increase the price for our customers. It was the same $20 price for our cameras, even though we moved to some better internal components to plan for the future. And yet you're still break even. How did that happen? We were able to partner with some folks on the supply chain side, and given the volume that we were at, able to secure components at a price that worked for us. And do you guys design the camera, or did you find someone who made a really good camera with good components at a low cost? How did that work? Yeah, so the manufacturing partner that we work with has deep experience making cameras, and so you will actually see other cameras that have a similar industrial design, so from an external perspective, look the same as ours. So we license the industrial design, the overall outside piece, and then we partner with them to customize the internal components and write our own firmware and software to customize the cameras for our use and for us. So while the camera may look the same as a couple other cameras out there, it's not compatible and it's a completely different camera from an internal perspective. Got it. And this is a Chinese manufacturer? It is. Okay, because a lot of people in their, I can't believe it's so cheap effort, have looked at like their packets and where those go. And they noticed that some of them go to China. And they were a little concerned about that. Do you want to talk about why that might be? We did see some comments from customers. So this was early feedback that we got from customers. So we, I guess there are two pieces of this. So one piece is the peer-to-peer connection that's made between the phone and the camera. And we used an external service from that. It was a commercial service from a pretty standard company that does that connection. And they have servers all over the world. So we were just using whatever server happened to be the fastest at the time the customer was calling up that connection. But we got the feedback from customers that they would prefer to have US-based servers. So we went back to that service provider and actually worked with them to restrict our traffic to U.S. servers. So for our cameras now, they are restricted to U.S. servers. Got it. And then you guys do all the software here and they're hosted here, correct? Yes, it's all, yes. It's on AWS. Yes, we use AWS. Let's go back to the integration with Madam A. I know that a lot of your customers were asking for this, so I'm assuming that's why you went first. But are you looking for new partners or are you going to do this with other vendors as well? Yeah, so this was based on customer feedback. So we'd put out surveys in a number of different areas asking customers what kind of integrations they wanted. And so we got a breadth of answers. Madam A was the top requested, I believe, that we got. So that was the first one we started working on. We did actually integrate with IFTTT first. So that was our first integration that we announced about a month ago. And we will continue to look at other options. Again, it's it'll be based on what customers are asking for. 
And how does that affect your costs as you start thinking about going forward supporting Madam A? Is there a limit? There definitely are costs associated with those. For us, it's a cost-benefit analysis. So there is a cost associated with it, but it also opens us up to so many more users and makes our products so much more useful to our customers. And so we look at both sides of that and we make a business decision. But ultimately, we're looking to provide the best experience to our users because ultimately that will bring more people into the platform. And as we scale, we can then support higher costs with other integrations. And is the goal to, we've talked about providing low cost products and doing a really awesome job at the software and service side. Is the goal to just be a camera company? Are you going to add more stuff, more features to these cameras? Yeah, sure. And and I do want to be clear that while we offer awesome prices, our goal is not to be the low cost option. And that's not, we hope that's not why people choose our cameras. Our goal is always to make an awesome camera. The fact that it only costs $20 is an added bonus, but our cameras perform peer to peer, spec to spec with, I would say, all of the mainstream cameras out there. So wait, then why is the Nest 10 times more expensive? It's a good good question for Nest. I would look at, they have a very different distribution model. So when you're in large retail stores, there's a big chunk of the price slash profit that goes to that retail channel. There's profitability of the company itself. There's marketing, branding. You see large corporate sponsorships, large celebrity sponsorships. Those are things we don't want to pay for as customers and we don't think our customers want to pay for. So we cut all of that out and really just focus on what is the cost of making an awesome product and selling that in a sustainable way. Okay, sorry. Now you can go back to telling me what you guys are going to do next. So we'll continue to invest in features and continue to improve our existing products and support them over time. We are looking at other cameras as well. So I don't think it's a secret that a lot of our customers ask for an outdoor camera. So that is something that we have on our radar. It's, you know, that's a challenging thing to do. So it will take us some time, but that is something we have definitely on our radar because that is a top request from our users. And we do have ambitions beyond cameras as well. So nothing concrete to share or announce, but we do hope to go beyond cameras. Awesome. And final question for you. Let's talk about security and privacy because these are big issues with cameras. So what kind of security steps are you guys taking both to encourage users to behave better and then also on your end to make sure you don't get hacked? Yes, definitely. So customer data security and safety is top priority for us, incredibly important in any camera product. It's a huge responsibility for us when customers bring a camera of ours into their home and we take that of paramount importance. And so we take a lot of steps on the security side. Obviously, we use the AWS servers. All of those connections are made via HTTPS. For the alert videos, we use symmetric and asymmetric encryption, consistent hashing, and some other things on the back end to make sure that our user information is secure and can't be stolen. And then what about privacy? What is your philosophy around customer data? Yeah, of course. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that as well. So all of our live stream connections are done via a peer-to-peer connection between the user's phone and the camera. So Wise has no visibility into that. For all of the alert videos that are stored in the cloud, those are sent directly from the cloud to the users. And WISE does not access the individual videos of our users. And also to give our users more control over their privacy, we really focus on features within the app to be able to turn off the camera or, for example, turn off sound in the recording of videos. So 
in our recent app update, we actually added the ability to turn on and off the camera. And with integrations with IFT, you can actually use geolocation and use the location of your phone to control the on-off of your camera so that you can turn it off when you're at home and don't want it to be recording. Oh, that's awesome. I had asked for that. So, wow. Okay. Yes, we're listening. There you we, go. We listen to your podcast and yeah, we listen to all of our users and try and incorporate that as much as possible as we're planning our app releases. Excellent. All right. Well, Alana, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.